to the June 2014 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess along with Sarah Moore. This month we are pleased to publish the papers from the journal conference, Adult Artificial Airways and Airway Adjuncts. We are grateful to the conference co-chairs, Charles Durbin and Carl Haas, and the faculty for making this conference a success. Sarah, let's get started. Davies and colleagues address approaches to manual ventilation, which includes airway assessment, maneuvers to open the airway, applying airway support devices, and effective bag mask ventilation. Often, simple airway maneuvers can achieve a patent airway. Appropriate use of airway adjuncts can further aid the clinician in situations where airway maneuvers may not be sufficient. Bag valve mask ventilation plays a vital role in improving both oxygenation and ventilation while preparations are made for endotracheal intubation. Anticipation and early recognition of situations where bag mask ventilation may be difficult or impossible allows clinicians to quickly make adjustments or to employ another intervention to avoid delays in establishing adequate ventilation. Sometimes we forget the basics. I like that this paper reminds us that basic airway management and skill performing bag mask ventilation is important and should not be forgotten. As presented by Durbin et al., endotracheal intubation is commonly performed operating room procedure that provides safe delivery of anesthetic gases and airway protection during surgery. The most common intubation technique in this setting, with infrequent difficulty, is direct laryngoscopy with orotracheal intubation. Careful patient evaluation, advanced planning, equipment preparation, system redundancy, use of checklists, familiarity with airway algorithms, and availability of additional help when needed has resulted in exceptional success and safety. Airway difficulties during intubation outside of the controlled environment of the OR are more frequent and more serious. Translating the intubation processes practiced in the OR to intubations outside the perioperative setting should improve patient safety. This paper considers each step in the OR intubation process in detail and proposes ways of incorporating perioperative procedures to intubations outside of the OR. Many readers of the journal do not work in the operating room. Similarly, many anesthesiologists do not fully appreciate the issues of airway management in an uncontrolled environment outside the OR. For those of us who do not practice in the operating room, we can learn much from our anesthesia colleagues, most of whom are experts in airway management. The paper by Collins presents a brief background regarding the development and practice of laryngoscopy and examines the equipment and techniques for both direct and indirect methods. Patient evaluation during the airway exam is discussed as are predictors for difficult intubation. Laryngoscope blade design, newer intubating techniques, and a variety of indirect laryngoscopy technologies are reviewed, as is the learning curve for these devices and techniques. Laryngoscopy is a key component to the intubation process. The use of video laryngoscopy has exploded in recent years and is now a commonly used technique. This paper nicely reviews direct and indirect laryngoscopy. 
Fiber optic intubation, or FOI, is an effective technique for establishing airway access in patients with both anticipated and unanticipated difficult airways. The paper by Collins and Blink reviews the pertinent technology, clinical techniques, indications for, and complications in its use. The role of FOI in airway management algorithms is discussed. Evidence is presented comparing FOI to other techniques with regard to difficult airway management. The literature on training processes and skill development in FOI is also reviewed. Fiber optic intubation can be a valuable technique in the controlled environment of the OR as well as in other settings. This paper is a good overview of this approach to intubation. Mechlin and Herford explain how performing emergency endotracheal intubation necessarily means doing so under less than ideal conditions. Rates of first-time success will be lower than endotracheal intubation performed under controlled conditions in the OR. Some factors associated with improving success are predictable and can be modified to improve outcomes. Factors discussed in this paper include the initial decision to perform endotracheal intubation in out-of-hospital settings, qualifications and training of providers performing the intubation, the techniques selected for advanced airway management, and the use of sedatives and neuromuscular blocking agents. I suspect that many readers of the journal participate in emergency intubation on a regular basis. For those of us who do, this paper is essential reading and will help us care for patients in this setting. The ideal timing and techniques for tracheostomy have been topics of considerable debate. In this review by Chung and Napolitano, general issues regarding tracheostomy are addressed, with specific review of the literature regarding appropriate timing of tracheostomy tube placement. Based on the evidence from two large randomized trials, it is reasonable to wait at least 10 days to be certain that a patient has an ongoing need for mechanical ventilation before consideration of tracheostomy. Percutaneous tracheostomy with flexible bronchoscopy guidance is recommended. Advances include the use of real-time ultrasound guidance for percutaneous tracheostomy, new tracheostomy tubes for percutaneous dilational tracheostomy, and new percutaneous techniques are described. Tracheostomy teams and tracheostomy hospital services with standardized protocols for tracheostomy insertion are associated with improved outcomes. This paper addresses many important issues related to tracheostomy, such as timing, technique, and management. It is important reading for all of us who care for patients requiring tracheostomy. Superglottic airway devices are used to keep the upper airway open for unobstructive ventilation are reviewed by Ramakandran and Kumar. First-generation supraglottic airway devices rapidly replaced endotracheal intubation and face masks in more than 40% of general anesthesia cases. Second-generation devices have further improved efficacy and utility by incorporating design changes. 
Superglottic airway devices have allowed more dependable positive pressure ventilation, are made of disposable materials, have integrated bite blocks, are better able to act as conduits for tracheal tube placement, and have reduced risk of pulmonary aspiration of gastric contents. They provide successful rescue ventilation in more than 90% of patients for whom bag valve mask ventilation or tracheal intubation is impossible. Concerns with their use include failing to adequately ventilate, causing airway damage, and increasing the likelihood of pulmonary aspiration of gastric contents. The use of supraglottic airway devices, such as the laryngeal mask airway, has rapidly penetrated anesthesia practice. Increasingly, these devices are being used in settings outside the operating room. They should be considered part of the armamentarium of airway management in all care settings. Haas and colleagues review the development and evolution of the endotracheal tube. Over the years, modifications have been made to the endotracheal tube to minimize gross aspiration, to isolate a lung, to provide a clear facial surgical field during general anesthesia, to monitor laryngeal nerve damage during surgery, to prevent airway fires during laser surgery, and to administer medications. Increasingly, it is appreciated that the endotracheal tube itself is a primary causative risk for developing ventilator-associated pneumonia because oral and gastric secretions leak down past the inflated endotracheal tube cuff into the lungs. Bacteria within the endotracheal tube also create a biofilm. Modifications to reduce the role of endotracheal tube in ventilator-associated pneumonia include an adequate cuff pressure, changing the material and shape of the cuff, and aspirating the secretions above the cuff. Antimicrobial coating of the endotracheal tube and mechanically scraping the biofilm from within the endotracheal tube have also been used. Although commonly the same style of endotracheal tubes are used in mechanically ventilated patients, there are a number of choices available to the clinician. In recent years, there has been much interest in endotracheal tube designs to reduce the risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Whether these tubes are cost-effective remains to be determined. Tracheostomy tubes are used to administer positive pressure ventilation, to provide a patent airway, and to provide access to the lower respiratory tract for airway clearance. As described by Hess and Alto Belli, differences in dimensions between tubes of the same inner diameter from different manufacturers may have important clinical implications. Tracheostomy tubes can be cuffed or uncuffed, may be fenestrated, and some are designed with an inner cannula. The optimal frequency of changing a chronic tracheostomy tube is controversial. Speech can be facilitated in patients with a tracheostomy tube who are breathing spontaneously by use of a speaking valve. In mechanically ventilated patients with a tracheostomy, the use of a talking tracheostomy tube using a deflated cuff technique with a speaking valve and using a deflated cuff technique without a speaking valve can also be used to facilitate speech. There are a variety of tracheostomy tubes commercially available. The selection of the correct tube for an individual patient can have an important effect on patient outcomes. 
it is often not appreciated that a patient with a tracheostomy tube is able to speak, whether breathing spontaneously or mechanically ventilated. Providing speech for a patient with a tracheostomy tube can greatly improve the patient's quality of life. Management of the artificial airway is described by Branson et al. Important are adequate humidification and appropriate airway suctioning. Cuff pressure management is important for preventing aspiration, assuring adequate ventilation, and preventing mucosal damage. The respiratory therapist should be facile with all these devices and understand the appropriate application and management. Management of the artificial airway requires much attention to detail, such as securing the tube, correctly inflating the cuff, and clearing airway secretions. Each of these issues is addressed in the paper by Branson. As discussed by our time in Hagberg, tracheal extubation is not only an important milestone for patient recovery, but also a procedure that carries considerable risk of complication or failure. Extubation failure and subsequent re-intubation is associated with an overall increase in the duration of mechanical ventilation, increased mortality, a greater need for tracheostomy, and higher medical costs. These risks demand that the process of extubation be managed by practitioners with a detailed understanding of the causes of extubation failure and potential complications, a pre-established extubation plan with consideration made for the possible need for re-intubation is of the utmost importance. Selection of the correct time for extubation is challenging, particularly in patients recovering from critical illness. Both prolonged intubation and premature extubation carry risks. Issues related to extubation are nicely covered in this paper. Pacheco, Lopez, and colleagues review the impact of endotracheal intubation on airway injury by describing the acute and long-term sequelae of each of the most commonly injured anatomic sites along the respiratory tract. They include nasoceptal injury, tongue injury, dental injury, mucosal lacerations, vocal cord immobility, and laryngotracheal stenosis, as well as tracheal malacia, tracheonominate, and tracheoesophageal fistulas. The proposed mechanisms of tissue damage that relate to each are reviewed, as well as the most common clinical manifestations and the diagnostic and management options. This article also includes a review of complications of airway management pertaining to video laryngoscopy and supraglottic airway devices. Potential strategies for preventing intubation-associated injuries are outlined. The potential for airway injury exists in all intubated patients. This paper provides a thorough overview of the types of airway injuries that can result from endotracheal intubation, as well as strategies to prevent these injuries. An appreciation for these injuries and close vigilance at the bedside should improve patient safety. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.